Romans chapter 8 is our passage this morning. We're going to start in verse 29 and read through the end of the chapter. If you've been keeping score, this is the the fourth time we've opened up chapter 8 in the book of Romans recently, and it'll be uh, the last time, time, at least for um, the near future. Uh, In his book, uh, Gospeling Gospeling Life Together, uh, Tom Wood shares the testimony of a woman named Carla. Now, Carla grew up in a home with uh, parents, which is always a good start, Uh, but her parents were kind of distant. They were kind of stuck doing their own thing in their own world, and Carla kind of grew up on her own, uh, in a sense, uh, maybe emotionally. Um, She uh, never went to church, uh, didn't have any kind of instruction or understanding of God in her life. Um, She did get some some worldview education, you might say, through school, talking about evolution and evolution in terms of how this is how we got here, answering those kinds of questions. Uh, she went on to college, and she uh, began her career. She was very successful. She worked very hard um, and, and just did well for herself. Uh, worked hard during the week. On the weekends, she would spend a lot of time with her friends and a lot of partying and those kind of activities, but always very diligent at work and was very successful at her work. But she got to the point where she was just kind of struggling with despair and despondency, and so she uh, took some time with a, a counselor or a therapist and kind of dialoguing with them about what's going on and how she's feeling and what she's, what's going on. She just didn't get it. Life is good on paper, but I'm just not there emotionally and relationally. And the counselor said, you know, maybe spend less time on your career, focus on your career, maybe more time on relationships. And it was about this time that she was invited uh, to a church uh, by a friend of hers that she'd grown to met probably through work named Sue. And she went to the church there, and and, uh, later she went to a, a small group and got plugged into that or came to that a couple times. And and she enjoyed it. She was agnostic. She, you know, she, I, I don't believe in God, but I'll go to church and check it out and maybe learn some new things and be interesting. And she did that, but she enjoyed the people. They were nice. They were normal. Like they would laugh and you could trust them and they were um, just easy to get along with. And so she kept going to this small group and, and kind of kept going to church. And then uh, her friend Sue and another woman, Lisa, who she'd met through this small group, they said, let's get together Thursday afternoon. So they get together one Thursday afternoon, and one Thursday afternoon again, and another Thursday afternoon, another Thursday afternoon. And next thing you know, uh, Carla's being discipled. Uh, she's, they're, they're taking her deeper into the faith, understanding who Christ is and what that means for her. And she would say that, I, I don't remember saying Yes. I don't remember saying, you know, yes, but it was, it's a process of unfolding in her life. And she's uh, spent some time later on towards the end of this process talking with her, her pastor at the time. And she says this, one weekend after, you know, attending a, a party, she had this kind of observation about herself. She said, all of a sudden I had this sense, this pressing reality that this was not my life, that I had found a new one. She went on to say, no one told me I couldn't go out and party or that it was wrong. In fact, Lisa and Sue, her friends that had, were instrumental in leading her to Christ, told me I should keep hanging out with my friends. But I knew I just, but I knew, I just knew that I was different. There was a God who had loved me and Jesus had died to give me life and make me whole. I had changed. 
The reason I share this testimony with you because it's, it's such a good picture of, of a story of what it looks like for us to see somebody coming to Christ, somebody coming to a, a knowledge of him with their background, their life story. They uh, encounter God's people and they encounter the gospel and how God faithfully works uh, according to his word. But I want us to, to think about there's another side to that story. There, that's the story that we see and that we can discuss but there's another side to that story, and it's maybe the story that God could tell about how this woman came to faith and what it took for her to come to faith. It's a story from God's perspective of somebody coming to faith. As we read this passage, 28 through 39, I want you to see if you can pick up on those, those themes of what it looks like for God to bring somebody uh, to himself from his perspective. And so as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Romans 8, starting in verse 28, we'll read through verse 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is forced, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Would you pray with me? Father, how we need to hear the reality that you are for us. In these moments, would you give us ears to hear and receive All that you are, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Many of you can remember the movie Forrest Gump. It came out in the early 90s. And one of the characters in that movie is uh, Jenny, who who is uh, Forrest's love interest really since childhood. They'd grown up together and and keep meeting each other in in episodes of their lives. And uh, Jenny has come home to Greenbow, Alabama, and Forrest is there, and they're spending time together. And one day in this, in this scene, one day they're walking together through this field. It's warm out, and she doesn't have her shoes on. And they're walking along, and all of a sudden they come to this house. Not really a house. It's like this shack that's just been neglected for years and years and years. It's just falling apart. It's abandoned, obviously. And Jenny just stops when she sees this house. 
She begins to, she's got her shoes in her hands, so she just starts throwing her shoes at this house and just yelling and screaming. She picks up rocks and just starts throwing it at this house, and, and she's screaming, how could you do that to me? How could you do that to me? Over and over again. And finally, she just is crying, and she falls to her knees, and force comes up next to her. And you hear, you know, you get his commentary that kind of runs throughout the whole movie. He says at this moment, sometimes I guess... There just aren't enough rocks. There just aren't enough rocks. Meaning, sometimes there's just not enough rocks to deal with the wounds that we've received. And if you remember, Jenny, in that movie, you know that she spent many of her years wandering from this and that, from relationships, from addictions and substance abuse and all this kind of stuff. And you look at her and you know that there's something that is frustrating her something that's that's got her off and you find out in that moment what it is it's her father uh his abuse uh of her at at a young age and how that just shipwrecked her life for so many years and while it's it's a powerful scene and it's a powerful moment i think it's a, a reminder to us of how much we just want somebody that's for us somebody that we know is in our corner Somebody that we can depend upon, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what we're facing, we know that that person is there for us. Jenny was supposed to have that person in her father, but he failed her. In this passage here, Paul is is showing us, reminding us, giving us some some greater detail and, and affirmation, encouraging us that there is somebody that is for you. No matter what you face, no matter what difficulties are on your plate, that he will always be there for you. What I want to do with this passage is, is think about it like this. I want to talk about how he's for us today. I want to talk about how he's for us tomorrow and how he's for us always. So today, tomorrow, and always. If you take a step back and think about Paul and his teaching in this chapter, he perhaps is answering the question that many of us have about God, and that is, is God safe Is God safe for me? And he starts off strong in verse 1. He says, there is no condemnation. So, of course, you are safe. You are safe uh, for eternity with him. You're safe from punishment. You're safe from judgment. You have that kind of security. There is no fear of God that we should have like that in our lives, that he's going to judge us and hold us accountable. Uh, Christ has paid that debt. But then you get to verse 28, And you see more of how he is for us and how we are safe with him. That there are no difficulties uh, that we may face that are going to keep us from God working in our lives. Again, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. A couple of observations. First, thinking about for the good, the good, how do we define that and what does that mean he's talking about everything that happens to us works for the good what what are those things that he is working in our lives Uh, rc sproul talks about four types of actions he breaks down actions into four categories and it'll make just give me a moment it'll make sense of what we're talking about here he says there are actions that are good good there are actions that are bad good There are actions that are bad, bad, and then there are actions that are good, bad. Okay, so actions that are good, good are actions only done by God. 
uh, and by Christ. They are perfect. They're done in certainly in accordance with his law, with his commandments, but they're done from a pure position, with, with full of love and full of glory to himself. They're actions that are bad good. These are actions that are come with, with mixed motives, so to speak. This is uh, somebody doing the right thing, for example, following the law, keeping the law, but doing it for the wrong motives. They're self-centered motives, and so they are, are, are bad, good actions. Then there are actions that are bad, bad. And this is what you think they are. Uh, they are evil, and they come from evil or impure motives, okay? And then there are actions, finally, that are good, bad. And I think this is what Paul is, helps us understand what Paul is talking about in this passage in verse 28. Uh, they are things that are truly bad that happen to us. Suffering, difficulties, injustices, truly evil things that happen to us. But God in his providence, God in his sovereignty, uses those things in our life for our good, for our benefit, you might say. Now, remember the context of Paul saying this, this famous promise in verse 28. In verse 18, he's talked about suffering and the, the need to persevere in the midst of suffering, the groaning, that the hardships that we encounter, that, that they're nothing compared to what awaits us in eternity. And then he gives this example. He's saying all things that happen to us, uh, don't worry, God is going to use us for a benefit in your life. So particularly the difficulties, particularly the things that you face that just look horrible, and they are horrible. Uh, it's, it's a bad report from the doctor. It's an injustice in your life. It's some kind of difficulty. As horrible those things are, even God will, God will even use those type of things for your good, for your benefit. So certainly the, the day-in, day-out things, God is, is sovereign enough and providential enough to use those things for our good. But even the big things, even the things we, there's nothing good that come out of this, he's still able to use those for our benefit. There's something else, though, to, to point out very briefly. He talks about God works for good, but notice it's according to his purpose. It's according to his purpose in our lives that he works these things. According to his will, to flip it around is to say that we are not the point. Uh, we are not the point of these things and God's uh, good, de- good things that he does in our life, but he is the point. He's going to do it according to his will, according to what he sees is best and necessary for us. He brings things into our life according to his purpose. But there's words of assurance, too. It's easy to pick up this promise. It's like, yes, I want to see... All things work for the good in my life. I want that kind of benefit for God. But how do I know that's going to happen? How do I know it's going to unfold like that in my life according to this passage? Well, did you catch the condition for those who love him? For those who love God, all these things happen for them. Now, when you hear the phrase, those who love God, what does that mean? Uh, If you're sitting there thinking, well, I... I believe the Bible. I believe in Christ is, is real. He's the Son of God and all that. That's important. That's necessary. But that's not love for God. John, in, in his gospel, quotes Jesus as saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Love for God, in other words, is expressed by obedience, by following him, by trusting him, by living the Christian life according to his scriptures that he gives us. If you were here with us this past Wednesday night, we talked a pretty good bit about this passage. And we pulled up a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones who makes the, the, the observation, why is it that Paul uses love as opposed to something like believe? Why does he say according to those who love him is... And why didn't he say something like, for those who believe in him or have faith in him? Now, remember, when Paul is talking about all things working for the good, some of those all things include difficulty and include suffering. What's the, the, the quickest way you, you can tell somebody, uh, the quickest way you can tell somebody is, is, is loving God is how they respond to difficulty, how they rep- respond to suffering in their lives. In other words, it's, it's easy to believe in God when life is good, when all the good things are working out for good ways in my life, but when all the bad things come into my life and I hear him say they're supposed to work for my good, it's easy to drop God and think, you know, I just kind of give up on this. It's not what I signed up for. But for those who love him, when they meet difficulty, they're able to endure they're able to persevere. They're able to stay faithful to him. And so let that be a real assurance and a place of confidence. As you're following, as you're trusting, I'm not saying you're doing it perfectly, you're not without fault, um, but you do it in your weakness, you do it in your brokenness, you can trust him to work those things out for the good in your life. That's God for us today. Let's think about him for us tomorrow. Start in verse 30. Uh, Maybe it stuck out uh, to you. Paul says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Think about it like this, because this is going to set us up for something. One author shares um, about Emily Phillips, who's 69, and she was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. She is going to die, and it's going to come sooner rather than later. And she's feeling that the weight of this and the suddenness of this. And she is quick. She says, well, I'm going to write my obituary. She begins to write her obituary out. And she talks to her daughter and says, when I pass away, I want you to post this on Facebook. I want you to post my obituary up on Facebook. So it's the, the times we live in, I guess, Facebook. And so she passes away. And this is the post that she has her daughter put up on Facebook. It goes, it pains me to admit it. But apparently I have passed away. Everyone told me what happened one day, but that's simply not something I wanted to hear, much less experience. So I was born, I blinked, and it was over. The author who's sharing this account goes on to say something uh, about this. He says, "I I can describe my life story in four words, born, work, accumulate, die. He goes on to say, I share these words with a, with a friend from Cuba, and they said, for me, it would be born, work, survive, die. Now, it would be interesting to go around the room and say, you know, what four words would you use to describe your life uh, year to date? If you had to encapsulate, encapsulate your life and capture your life in four words, what would, it, what would it be? What Paul is taking us, if you had to capture your spiritual life and who you are spiritually and who you are in relationship with with God, the four words perhaps that he would use would predestined, called, 
justified, glorified. Now, I'm not going to get in the weeds about predestination. That's coming. We're not going to avoid that because it comes to us very distinctly in chapter 9. And when we get there, we'll get there. But this verse here sets us up for what Paul says in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? Everything we've just particularly talked about, especially the, um, what God has done in our lives to bring us to himself, goes like this. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can stand, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul is doing. He's using the argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying that you're, the, the greater in our life is our need to deal with the, the, us destroying our lives, with uh, the, the punishment of what happens to us without Christ in our lives, our sin problem, uh, the problem that's gonna, that we're going to face if there's no dealing with our sin. And God is, or Paul is reminding us, God has dealt with our biggest problem, our need for forgiveness. He's dealt with that. And if he's dealt with that, Surely he's going to deal with the lesser things. And he wants us to see if you want assurance, if you want confidence, if you want rest and peace, and and to know that he is for you tomorrow, then you've got to take in the, the, uh, the greatness of what he has done for you. You've got to know what he has done for you, the reality of that, and be convinced of that in the personal work of Christ. And so my question is, do you see and know the lengths that God has gone to save you? Do you see and know the lengths that God has done, gone to save you? And the, key, and the reason that's important is because it will affect how you live today and it will affect how you live tomorrow as it relates to your confidence and peace with him. There's a famous story in the Old Testament. Y'all are familiar with it. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember this moment in Genesis 22 uh, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, Isaac at this time, he was probably a teenager, youngish. So he grabs his son, grabs the sacrifice equipment that he needs, knife, wood, things like that. And he makes this long journey to Mount Moriah. And he gets up there and Isaac is bound. He's laying on top of the sacrifice And you know that scene where Abraham has the knife in hand. He's holding that blade above Isaac, and he's about to come down and and make sacrifice of his son. And God stops him at that moment, and he says to him, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now I know that place where Isaac was going to be sacrificed was Mount Moriah. And years later, it would be called Mount Calvary outside of Jerusalem. And hundreds of years later, after this scene of sacrifice, Jesus would be praying in a garden. And he would be crying out to God, God, don't let me take this cup of the cross. Don't let me, I don't want to go to the cross. If there's another way, let it be so. But the end he prays, not my will, but your will be done. What does God say to his son? How does God answer? He says no, right? He says no. And Jesus proceeds to go to the cross and, and, and face that. All that to say, 
do you see and do you know the lengths that God has gone to to save you, to bring about your salvation in your life, to say to him, to look at that cross and say, now I know that you love me because you gave me your son, your one and only son for me. And the more you take on the, the majesty of that, the magnitude of that, and you let that settle and find a home deep in your heart, it's going to affect how you respond to everything else. Because if you're ever wondering, God, do you care about this? Do you care about that? I know how much you love me, and I know you're going to meet me in my days that I need every day. Last point, how God is for us always. Verse 37, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what Paul is doing. He's like he's come up with this list. Okay, if somebody was to come up with a list, what could possibly keep me from God? What barriers are out there? Paul is saying, I'm going to list all these things. It's like almost like 10 of them out there. Death nor life. Any kind of crisis in your life that you may face, even death itself, that that can't keep you from the love of Christ. Angels nor demons. It's like anything superhuman out there, that's not going to keep you from the love of Christ that he has for you. And then he talks about time and space and powers and anything in all creation. It's like he's trying to be as comprehensive as possible and say that there's nothing out there that's going to separate you from the love of Christ. It's not going to happen. Think about everything he has said already. Nothing will separate us from him, which is why I don't don't care how long you've been a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or for 50 years, you're probably going to find a moment in your life where you're feeling like God has left you, God has abandoned you. You feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the wall, that they're not going to his throne. He's not hearing you. He's not answering you. He's not working in your life. And it's in those moments I think Paul's reminding us that you can't trust your feelings. You can't believe your feelings. But you've got to let God's word trumpet over those things. You've got to let God's word, God's word be louder to you than anything that you are feeling. Because the reality is nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Let me close with this story. Brian Chappell talks about a, a woman who's 33 years old. And she has um, spent the past 18 months um, divorcing her husband. Her husband was uh, a minister, pastor, and he ran away with the organist and uh, apparently gave up on the faith. And so for 18 months, she has been going through this process of this ordeal in her life. And she's kind of come to the moment where she's got to kind of change gears or close the chapter out on that and, and move forward and, and move on. But she, she can't move forward. There's something hindering her from moving forward. And so she goes and she talks to a pastor uh, about it, somebody else presumably that she trusts and feels comfortable with. And for her, it's not about the anger. It's not about the depression. It's not about guilt. Um, but she speaks of fear. That's what's keeping her from moving on. This is how she expresses her fear. She says, I, I, she says, I don't know if I can trust myself. I thought my husband had it all together. 
I worshiped him from the faith for the faith that I thought he had. I still don't know anyone who knows more about God and the Bible. If now he says he's not a Christian, how do I know I will be? I'm scared to step forward in any direction. What if the same cliff over which he fell is out there waiting for me and somewhere, someday, I'm going to fall off it? You don't have to be a professional to understand what she's struggling with. She's struggling with uncertainty. She's struggling with, am I safe? Is, is God safe for me? What has Paul been answering in chapter 8 of the book of Romans? He's been answering the question, is God safe? Is God safe for me? He's safe for us spiritually in the sense that he's forgiven us. He's safe for us with our lives because he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He's not going to give up on us. If he saved us, if he's given us his son that he loves, he's, given, he's done that great thing, how much more will he give us all things? In fact, in the midst of everything that we see and experience in our lives, he's not indifferent to those things, but he's using those things in his sovereign, his providential way, in his way of, in his wisdom that he only understands and practices. He's able to take those and work those things out for our good and for his glory. Let's take a moment to to pray to him and ask that he would give us the faith and eyes to see him. Father God, we pray that you would help us to receive these words of promise, these words of assurance. When we hit moments in our life where we wonder, are we safe? Are we safe from our circumstances? Are we safe from ourselves even? We pray that Paul's words, that there is no condemnation, all things working for the good, that nothing can separate us from you, that we are more than conquerors, this overwhelming grand language and promises that they would settle deep within us because we all know moments when our feelings overwhelm us with despair, with disappointment, with discouragement. Don't let those things blind us to the reality of your truth, of your glory, and of your power working in and through us. We ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.